The facts will speak for themselves. Well, actually, they don't. Facts don't speak. Facts must be arranged, informed to tell a story, because stories speak. And although stories are made up of facts, stories are not always true. Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast made for and by changemakers, where we gain the courage to own our story, the freedom to own our craft, and the power to own the future. My name is Lucas, and thank you for being with me today on episode 30 of Own the Future. Today, we're talking about facts, stories, and truth. See, we as humans would like to believe ourselves as being rational human beings, that we act according to the knowledge and the facts that we have, according to the truth that we know. But truth be told, we are far from rational. If we were rational, no one would smoke, no one would sit for long hours or eat anything that contains MSG. We are not rational and we do not follow facts. We arrange facts to tell ourselves stories that we like to hear, stories that make us feel good, or stories that align with the stories that we have been told for generations regardless of the evidence. Why? Well, as Seth Godin would say, because people like us do things like this. We believe and we retell stories that have been told to us or we think that others want to hear. Why? Because of social proof. We want to stand out and be noticed, but not too much. We still want to fit in. But the stories, the stories aren't always true. The quote-unquote facts don't always become stories that add up to the full truth. Take one of the most famous court cases in all of modern history, the trial of O.J. Simpson, the American football player who, on July 12, 1994, around 10 p.m., brutally murdered Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. The facts, the evidence, was overwhelmingly clear. The data, the DNA evidence, everything pointed to the fact that one and one person only could have been responsible for killing Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, O.J. Simpson. But facts don't arrange themselves. Facts require people, people like you and I, to arrange them, to weigh them, to omit them, to include them, to question them, to spin them. And the fact of the matter is, pun intended, O.J. Simpson's defense were the best storytellers the law had to offer. Johnny Cochran, Ethel Bailey, Alan Dorchwitz, Robert Shapiro, Barry Shrek, and the best scientific experts across the country. They were called the Dream Team, and they had a lot of money to spend to bake and spin the best story. They really should have been called the dream weavers because they were able to weave the facts in such a way to tell a story so fantastic that they got OJ off of two counts of murder despite the truth. It wasn't a miracle. 
the defense just told a better story. Whereas the prosecutors, Marsha Clark and Chris Darren, presented a laundry list of evidence. They even said that it was the most massive and compelling body of physical, scientific, and circumstantial evidence ever assembled against a criminal defendant in American history. But the evidence, the evidence doesn't matter. Because people don't believe or buy evidence. They believe and they buy stories. What was this massive and compelling body of evidence? Well, without going too much into the details of a story and the timeline of the events of that fateful night, the facts and the evidence against O.J. Simpson are as follows. Simpson's left-hand glove came off at the crime scene, and he suffered a deep cut in his left hand. The police found directly in front of O.J. Simpson's house, his white Ford Bronco slightly askew to the curb where it had been as though hurriedly parked, and there was blood outside the car and on the interior car and on the console and on the carpet of the car. Inside the locked car, they found blood. At the rear of the house, Detective Mark Furman, who comes into play later in the story, found a bloody right-hand glove that matched the one found at the crime scene. In addition, there was a trail of blood leading from OJ's Bronco to his front gate. And inside the house, they found OJ's bloody socks. The DNA evidence established that every single drop of blood from the crime scene and from OJ's house belonged to either Nicole Simpson, OJ Simpson, or Ron Goldman, or a combination of the two or three of them, placing OJ Simpson and his blood at the scene of the crime. And the DNA evidence, the statistics that it might be someone else's blood other than O.J. Simpson, was a million to one. In some cases, it was even 10 million to one. The prosecution found hair and fiber on Goldman's shirt that proved to be O.J. Simpson's. And on the glove that they found at O.J. Simpson's house, they found a hair that belonged to Nicole. Now, these gloves were only sold in Bloomingdale's, and only 200 gloves were sold in the extra-large size. Now, get this. Nicole Simpson had a receipt proving that she had bought two pairs of that model glove from Bloomingdale. There couldn't be very many other people who had this glove. In fact, there could only be 198 other people that had this glove. Now get this. There were bloody footprints found at the scene of the crime, size 12, from a specific shoe, Bruno Magli. There's only about 9% of the population wears a size 12, including, yep, O.J. Simpson. And there were only 200 pairs of size 12, Bruno Maglia Lorenzo Boots imported to the United States, and Bloomingdale's was one of about five retailers to carry it. The odds were totally against him. 
The limo driver saw OJ enter the house around 10.49 and then shortly after came back to the limo saying that he had quote-unquote overslept. There is also the lengthy documentation of physical abuse and stalking and violence against Nicole Simpson by OJ Simpson. So is there any doubt of OJ's guilt? Well, apparently the defense was able to prove and convince the jury of doubt in all this evidence. They told a better story. Not only did the defense tell a better story, but they told their story to an audience who wanted to hear a story that they were pushing and peddling. What was their story? Their story is that the LAPD is corrupt and racist and use brutality against African Americans, which holds truth. It was just three years earlier that the LAPD brutally beat up Rodney King. And what happened to those cops? Well, they got off scot-free. How is the defense going to tell and weave this story of racism and police brutality? Well, first they were going to find an audience that wanted to believe the story that they were telling. The defense secured nine African-American jurors. Why and how? Well, Marsha and Chris chose to prosecute O.J. Simpson in a predominantly African-American district. Why? Because it had a bigger courtroom. Besides, with all that evidence, would it really matter? They were so confident in their massive body of evidence that Marsha ignored the fact that after a poll, her analysts told her that African-American women hated Marsha Clark. They hated her, but she didn't believe it. And she insisted that she was loved by the African-American community. She insisted that it wasn't going to be a problem. Second, the dream team, the defense, demonstrated that the police could not be trusted. They were indeed racist liars. The prosecution made the mistake of putting Mark Furman on the stage, who was an actual racist and lied under oath, saying that he never said the N-word. Well, it turns up an interview surfaced where Mark Furman, the guy who found the glove, remember, said the N-word up to 40 times in a single interview after swearing under oath that he had never, ever used the N-word ever in his life. This further supported the defense's story that the LAPD set OJ up. Why? Because they're racist. They hate blacks. And it played perfectly to their black jury in L.A. on the heels of years of police brutality against the African-American community. Then there was the famous glove scene where Chris Darren, on a whim, asked O.J. Simpson to put on the gloves, those old leather gloves that had shrunk while O.J. had to wear Latex gloves? Yeah, well, the gloves, quote-unquote, didn't fit anymore. Bad move. Lastly, the defense humanized 
O.J. Simpson and made him more relatable to the jurors. They brought him to O.J.'s house, and before the jurors arrived to see O.J.'s house, they changed all the photos of O.J. Simpson with white women, and he put up African-American art, photos of his mom, photos of other African-Americans, so that the black juror would like him and see him as part of their African-American community. The defense, the dream team, they flipped the narrative. Instead of O.J. Simpson being on the stand for murder, they put the LAPD on trial for racism and corruption. Instead of arguing about the evidence, they said, how can you even trust this evidence? The corrupt police presented this evidence. Of course it's corrupt. They're corrupt. Look, they lied on the stand, they mishandled evidence, and they're trying to destroy the character of an upstanding member of the African-American community. Why? Because of OJ's success. Because they hated black people. And what did Marsha Clark and Chris Darren do in response of this overt flipping of the script and humanization of O.J. Simpson? Well, they played right into the defense's story, even in their closing arguments. Chris said, quote-unquote, nobody wants to do anything to this man. We don't. There's nothing personal about this. Whatever you do, the decision's yours. I'm glad it's not mine. Wait a minute. Yes, we want to do something to this man. We want to put him in prison for life because he brutally stabbed and murdered two people. What did Marcia say about O.J. Simpson? She said, he is such a famous guy, such a popular guy, a good-looking man. That is not something that you want to say about the murderer that you're trying to convict. This is not a fun place for me to be. Do you feel a loyalty to the defendant? The defendant is such a famous guy. You may not like me for bringing this case. I'm not winning any popularity contests for doing so. It is almost as if Marsha Clark is admitting that, hey, you know, we don't want to do anything to him. You know, we don't really know if he's guilty or not. Like, we don't, we don't want to be in this position to press charges against him. Almost assuming that there is doubt in their story that maybe O.J. Simpson wasn't the right guy. Maybe he didn't do the crimes. Instead of villainizing O.J. Simpson, instead of villainizing their opponent, they and adamantly pressing for a conviction, they were almost saying, hey, look, we don't know if he's guilty either. We don't want him to pay for this crime. So what happened after almost a year-long trial? The jury deliberated for only four hours and came back with a not guilty verdict. OJ was later convicted in a civil suit for the deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman and fined $25 million, which, of course, he couldn't pay because he was broke. So what does this all mean for us? 
We can shake our heads at the story and say, wow, thank God that, you know, we're not as foolish as Marsha or Chris. We could throw our hands up to heaven and say, how could the jury be so blind to the truth? I would have never done that. But every day we try to sell the market or the people around us, our audience, the wrong story. And we buy stories that have been framed to resonate with the story and the narrative that we want to believe. Are we any smarter than Chris, Marsha, or the jury? No, we're not. But I think that we can learn to be. See, as humans, we buy emotionally. And by buy, I don't just mean purchase a product with money, but that is accepting or adopting a thought, a belief, an idea, a suggestion, fashion, a tool, a way of doing life. Adopting any sort of persuasion. So we buy emotionally and we buy based on stories that resonate with our core fears or social norms or social proof. We buy based on things that are are familiar, but that will raise our social status, but based on things that we desire. The story is fed to us in a way that resonates with us emotionally. This happens in the area of our brain called the limbic system. Once the limbic system is triggered, we subconsciously and instinctually spring into action. After we've decided our desired course of action, our frontal lobes kick in and we begin to justify our actions with evidence or facts. Of course, we're now viewing the world through a biased lens. We are looking for confirmation that is going to line up with what we've already decided, what we already believe. We're looking to confirm our preconceived notions or desires. Certain facts become dismissed. Evidence become weighed on a matter of subjective importance. And we successfully justify our own actions. Now, this can be used against us for both good or evil, for better or worse. And it can be used by us for good and evil, better and worse. Regardless, the facts, the evidence, it must be arranged into a story to speak to our audiences or to speak to us. And the audience, the person that we are sharing this story with, that person matters just as much as the story. Because the same story told to two different people, two different audiences can yield completely polar opposite results. Take the case of O.J. Simpson. Before the verdict... They took a poll across America and they showed that 77% of white people thought O.J. Simpson was guilty. And surprise, surprise, 77% of black people thought O.J. Simpson was not guilty. Same arguments heard, two different audiences, polarized results. So in closing, we have three takeaways. One. I often hear people say, we do better work, but we can't land the contracts. Or when we do, it's for half the price for twice the work than our competition. 
I hear the the frustration and I can see them pointing out the quality of the work, which is of the utmost excellence. And they're baffled when their clientele cannot see the massive, the quote unquote, massive and compelling body of evidence that proves they are the provider of choice. And it isn't that they aren't telling a story at all. It's that they're telling the wrong story to the wrong people. So if your market isn't buying your product or your service at your desired price point, then you need to change your story. You need to change the people that you're selling to, the audience that you're selling to, and the story that you're telling that audience because the desires of your client and the narrative of your story, they must line up. You must do the work of rearranging the facts to tell a story that they want to hear. Why? Is it to manipulate them? No. It's because you believe that by them choosing you, by them hiring you, that you will provide them with the best and a better service than anyone else in the market possibly could. Number two, we must question the stories that we believe. Question the evidence presented to you. Who's presenting it? What is their agenda? How are they laying out the evidence? What story are they telling to try to make you believe a story that may or may not be the truth? Because the truth, the truth matters. Truth is the ultimate force of power. And people will often spin the story from the facts to lead you to something other than the truth to keep you bound and held back for their own selfish gain. We have to carefully examine the narratives that we believe. There are some narratives that have been unknowingly passed down from generation to generation to generation. Some of them have been so ingrained in us through the education system or through our peer group, leading you or I to believe a particular narrative about yourself about the world around you. We all, we all have this. This is called culture. This is what holds us together. It's what holds society together. This is what creates a social fabric. But not all aspects of culture are good, nor are all narratives true or helpful. Some narratives can actually be quite damaging to individuals or society. They can look good in the moment and they can reap massive destructive consequences years down the line. Just look at socialism or communism. It sounds really good on the front end, this equality, everyone's equal, equal pay, equal rights. And on the back end, it has massive, massive consequences of hundreds of millions of lives. Just look at communism throughout the last hundred years and it the 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 truth is undeniable the third and final point are personal lives at own the future i often say own your story and you can own the future 
Now, I don't mean what many postmodern deconstructionists believe and would like you to believe, which is there are no facts. There is no truth. Make up whatever story you like to make up about yourself. Whatever you like the most, that will become your truth. No, it is not create your story, but own your story. Take ownership of your story. Take ownership of your life. Take responsibility for who you are, responsibility for your story. Be honest about your story with yourself and with others. What is required, though, is that we deconstruct the narratives that we believe about ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves, and we examine the evidence. We examine the building blocks of that story. Why? Not to spin it in whatever way we like to tell a different story, one that might sound better or cooler, or maybe we think that will help us more, but to discover truth, to face and to find the truth. Because it isn't your story that empowers you to own and create your future. It is the truth that empowers each and every one of us to own and transform the future. It is your story framed in and with truth that empowers you. It is your story framed in and with truth that sets you free. We can't just make up our story like O.J. Simpson and the Dream Team did. Because O.J. Simpson, in the short term, he won. He got off of murder charges. But now his life is one large wake of destruction, having lost everything and everyone after the trial, and he even ended up in prison for nine years afterwards on assault and battery charges. O.J. Simpson might have slipped prison for murder, but he is anything but free. So for you and me, let's, let's put it in a, an example of marketing. You can't just say that we have the best service and product if you don't. Your market, they will buy on that promise one time and then realize that, "Mm, no, they don't have the best service or product, if that's the story that you're trying to tell, and they will go elsewhere. You must be able to deliver on the promises that you're telling and you're making to your audience. Because if you're unable to deliver, then you're not telling the truth, and in the long run, you will suffer. Likewise, you can't quote-unquote reframe your personal narrative of belief about the world or who you are based on what you'd like it to be or what you would like to be. If you do, you will create a dysfunctional thought system, belief, or worldview that might look and sound and feel really good today, but like socialism and communism will reap massive destruction for years to come. But through examining evidence, uncovering truth, and then framing that evidence as a story, a story that is true and resonates with you, even though it is truth, or resonates with your audience, you are then empowered to shape your world. So, Evidence, facts, they don't speak for themselves. 
you must frame the evidence into a story. A narrative that people, including yourself, can understand. And if that story is the truth, you will shape the future. Remember, it is the truth that will set you free. Thank you for listening to Own the Future. I hope that if you made it this far through the podcast that you have learned something today, that you have learned how to tell your story better and how to tell your brand or your company's story better. Now, this is what I do. I help brands and companies tell their stories, find their stories, understand how to position and frame their stories in a way that will resonate with the needs and the cares of their clients, their audience, and their customers. So if you find yourself struggling in a fog, trying to figure out how to better communicate your story to your world, then I have good news for you. You are one step away from solving your frustration. Here's what to do. Reach out to me and my team will determine if your brand, if your organization is the right fit and alignment for our company to work with. Because we've discovered, my team and I, that we can't delight everyone, but we can delight someone. And that someone might be you. So I look forward to hearing from you. And remember, if you own your story, you can own the future. 